dear listener, welcome to Russification, a part of the Machan vs. the World podcast where we go on a journey through Russia with the amazing people that live here. We will explore the many diverse kinds of people, we will look at the culture, the obscure traditions and all things cool about this massive country. I hope you get to learn something new in this podcast with me. Hello everybody, we are back with Russification and it's been quite some time since I did my last Russification and with me is a really interesting guest who would like to introduce. Her name is Olga Chistanova, and she's going to be representing the Russian Republic of Hakassia. Olga, good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. How are you? How are you doing? Um, I'm, I'm pretty good um, on the Sunday morning. And it's great to <laughs> um, be with you today. Oh, yeah. Uh, but but isn't it a Saturday or am I messing my time up? Saturday. Okay. Saturday. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah Olga's living one day ahead of all of us. So yeah, I, I don't mind. <laughs> that's, do, that's my job. <laughs> oh yeah. Ooh, that's cool. So let's talk about your job. So she's the executive director of a really interesting organization called ICOM. That's the International Committee of Museums. Could you tell us more about that, what that organization is and what you do there? Yeah, sure. Thank you for asking me. Um, the ICOM, ICOM is an international organization, which is like a network uh, of museum professionals all around the world. Um, this organization um, was founded in uh, 1946 um as a result of this world war ii and it's a partner of unesco and mm-hmm. um this organization also has uh, lots of national and international committees and icom russia is one of them uh it was established in 1957 when uh the russian museum professionals decided to apply to join um icom as a national committee ussr and since that, ICOM Russia exists, has been existing. And uh, today, uh, this year, uh, it has 65 year anniversary. Mm. So, yeah, ICOM Russia um, contributes to the museum world. Uh, it helps the museum professionals. Uh, it tries to um, uh it's it tries to help uh the heritage to stay uh safe etc etc so it, we have we do lots of things and uh regarding icon russia we also organize lots of long-term projects like inclusive museum migrations revealing the personnel and uh, many many others re- regarding like digitalization at museums as well and also we are trying to work on cultural heritage especially intangible heritage Mm. so that's what we are trying to implement um in our work as well it's quite interesting that you mentioned intangible heritage because that's how i got to know about you so uh, let me just put that story there because we were attending this conference in yamal in a city called salahad called ice and it was about it's, it's about arctic it was an Arctic Council meeting for the youth of those countries, and there were some observer countries like India, China, etc. So one of the presentations which really caught my attention at that time was this presentation on intangible heritage, which I 
I found that title interesting and that's when I came to the whole that you were presenting and that's when I got to know about the whole uh, presentation, who you were and Hakasia. Because until that point, I haven't heard of a Russian Republic called Hakasia. And I like to think that I'm pretty, how do you say, knowledgeable about Russian republics because I'm interested and I do the podcast on it. But I was proved wrong at that point and I found you and I thought, okay, this would be interesting if I asked this girl who actually works in conserving a lot of uh, heritage, which is kind of an issue in Russia, which we will talk about. And that's her spear. And she's from one of the republics which has a minority population, which is Hakasia. So I thought mm -hmm. it'd be a brilliant idea to invite you to the podcast. And hence, here we are. So let's start with one thing first. Where is Hakasia located? Can you give like a geographical uh, location of Hakasia in the Russian Federation? Uh, sure. Hakasia is located in the south of Siberia. Um, it's uh, this territory um, connects with has borders with the Krasnoyarsk region, Tuva Republic, and Kemerova region. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's a very unique place um, because we have lots of natural zones uh, from the mountains to the steppes, um, taiga mm -hmm. forests, uh, rivers, and lakes. We have more than one thousand uh, lakes and more than two hundred rivers as you know mm. like you will not like be bored <laughs> if you are in Hakasia <laughs> you will always have some something to do and uh, for sure the most unique thing about Hakasia is that uh, Hakasia is also called as Mecca of archaeology because archaeology in Russian Empire and in Russia today started with Hakasia um, really? the famous archaeologist uh, Daniel Gottlieb Mr. Schmidt it was uh -huh. the first archaeologist who uh, started it in Russian Empire. Uh, uh -huh. He came to Hakasia for explorations, like for his excavations. And the first uh -huh. excavation started in Hakasia. And we also have lots of, until today, we have lots of um, archaeological monuments or graves, uh, which are still there and people still have excavations in Hakasia because we are rich with this kind of heritage. Interesting. So if I may clarify, so you're saying the first archaeological excavation in the Russian Empire started in Karande Hakasia? Yeah, Correct? and actually in Russia too, yeah. Oh. And uh, so this year, it's the 300 year anniversary since archaeology started. Oh wow! In Russian That's Empire, a, I think I, I think I'm making the call at the correct time because it's like the 65th <laughs> anniversary of ICOM, a 300 year anniversary of. Things. Yeah, it's, Actually, it's, quite, yeah. <laughs> it's quite a good time to call it this 2022. So, uh, before we get into the archaeology thing, I just want to ask one question, which, which might sound really stupid for a person who is from Russia, but how, what's the difference between the steppe and the tiger? Or could you define what those two things are? Because I sometimes get it confused when I try to know about it. Okay, thank you for asking. I think there is no stupid question if you are interested in something. <laughs> True. <laughs> okay, um, tiger is a forest. And Taiga is a forest which is located in Siberia, and it's one of the biggest forests, um, mostly uh, with um, kind of uh, 
like Christmas trees. I forgot this name in English when uh, uh, there are some spikes on the tree. Uh, coniferous trees, is that the name? Like pine oh. tree. Um, yeah. Or yeah, like you know the, what I mean, right? The trees that you see in European movies during Christmas or Hollywood movies yep. during Christmas, like the yep. Christmas type of trees. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, these kind of trees um, are everywhere in Taiga. So like mm -hmm. it's a natural forest, it's a huge natural forest. And steppe is a place where are no forests, no, uh, like no uh, trees. This is mm. like um, a plenty, a huge um, territory, which is not flat. It has some uh, hills. But uh -huh. uh, there are mostly like grass and some plants which are not very tall. Oh, okay. It looks like uh, some tourists, my friends who just come to Hakassia as tourists say that uh, it's like Mars or some other planet because wow. it's, it's just <laughs> everything is um, like, like there is nothing uh, except grass or something and it's yeah uh mostly yellow uh it becomes it turns yellow very quickly because uh in summer it's hot and uh, there are not so many rains and right. it's not even green and it's very like it's like space uh it's it really looks interesting <laughs> wow uh that's i i'd like to add something to the discussion so in this summer i hitchhiked through Russia, from Tuapse mm -hmm. to Vladivostok. So I passed wow. through all these places, like the steppe and a mm -hmm. uh, little bit of Taiga, then the Urals and the Pribaltiki and uh, Baikal. And I saw mm -hmm. for the first time in my life what the Russian word pustata means, which is like emptiness till horizon it's like so flat and just grass till the horizon but for a person from india i can't imagine something as empty as that because in india there's people everywhere and you won't find empty spaces like that but when you're traveling to the highways of russia especially in the steppe you see these empty vast lands that go till the end of the horizon it's it's quite it, my imagination went to a next level after seeing that through my eyes for the first time. So the steppes is like a really important part of, I think, Russian geography, because a lot of part of it is covered. And the taiga, as you told, is it's specific to Siberia. Am I correct? Yeah, um, taiga is the biggest forest in Siberia. Yeah, there are lots of different, but uh, there are lots of forests, but taiga is specifically the name of Siberian forest, which is ah. one of the biggest. Right, right. So if I am to use the word taiga for a forest which looks similar in, let's say, North America, it would be different? Um, I think maybe it's something pretty similar because there uh -huh. is the same kind of trees and probably mm -hmm. the nature is pretty similar. But uh, in some parts of Siberia, it's way colder than in North America because I've been right. to North America and no yeah. way I'm speaking about it. I've been to both. So right. uh, yeah, um, according to the um, nature, it's similar, but um, animal world differs a little bit uh, due to different continents, but mostly it's, yeah, uh, I think they 
look pretty similar, yeah. Right, right, right. So moving on, one other thing which I found interesting was why did Hakasia become like the epicenter of Russian archaeology during the uh, during the time of the Russian Empire? Why was the archaeologist in, interested exactly in Hakasia? What's the reason for that? Um, I'm not sure about how it started, but uh, they had like. Uh, this group of people uh, started to explore the Siberian part of Russia at that period of time because it wasn't a, really a part of Russia. Right. <laughs> and they, when they started to explore in it, um, they just found uh, some um, like some grave or something mm -hmm. which was very interesting for them. So they started digging it there. Okay. <laughs> That's how it started. And it was, it, and probably it was pretty easier to find something on the territory of Hakasia because there are many, many similar places. So as I mentioned, Hakasia is Mecca of archaeology. There are lots of archaeological um, places like uh, monuments, uh, graves and some other things. And if you even like travel with the car uh, around the Republic and uh, look at the size of the steps, you, in most of the times you will see at least several um, graves which are still there. So wow. it's, it's not easy not to um, notice it. <laughs> Wow. And probably as it was the richest place from this point of view, uh, they started digging there and that's how they explored it. And that's why the first excavations took place in Hakasia. But I'm not, it's my personal theory. I'm not sure about how they ended up there. But the fact right. is that they did it in Hakasia. And uh, since then, Hakasia is Mecca of archaeology and it's a fact. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> so... What did they find? What did the archaeologists find? Who were these graves for? Which were those people? Who were like the ancient descendants of the people that live in Hakasia? Um, as far as I remember, they found a grave of very rich people uh, who lived there about at that moment, 3000 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. If, if I'm correct, uh, so, and they, it, it was Okunev archaeological culture, if I'm correct and I remember correctly. And um, yeah, and as far as I know, the monuments which were found there um, are located at the, not Hermitage, but Kunstkamera right now. I'm so sorry? the most of the, the most of the findings, the most of the things, including monuments right. and uh, the pieces which were found during that excavations, uh, mm -hmm. now, as far as I remember, are located at Kunstkamera. Mm, I'm not that? sure. Uh, if what's the correct English name of it? Kunstkamera. Uh, it's a German um, name, also used very used very like um, widespread used in Russia. Uh, it's the name of the museum, which is located in St. Petersburg. Ah, oh, all right. Okay, so it's, it's a museum located in St. Petersburg. That, that's what I was trying to clarify. And mm -hmm. 
Okay, so who are those people? I mean, uh, I, I'm pretty sure they predate, like, the... Definitely predates the Russian Empire, definitely predates the Mongols. Who are, like, the ancient or the first settlers or the, what do you say, Korni Narod of Hakassia, as far as you know? Uh, it's a very long story. Like, uh, people in uh, on the territory of Siberia uh, traveled because they were nomads. And mm -hmm. if we speak about um, very, very many, many thousand years ago, uh, the first people which were found during, as a result of excavations were um, Neanderthals in Russian. Um, Neanderthals. Neanderthals. It's, yep. In English, yep. it's the same, yeah. So they were, um, these were the first people who, who were found uh, mm -hmm. during the excavation in Hakassia. And since that time, there were different uh, periods where people uh, lived and the cultures changed, um, like uh, Okunev, uh, Tagar, and other Tashtik, and like other archaeological um, cultures, which were switched during the thousands of the years. And okay. the first Hakas people appeared um, in. Uh, um, in ninth between between ninth and twelfth uh, century, this was mm -hmm. like ancient Hakas people. That's how they were called. Right. So yeah, uh, and uh, the um, the ethnographic period of Hakas people started in seventeenth century, way later, when Hakasia officially joined the Russian Empire. Right. So, yeah, and earlier, it's hard to call, um, like, to identify people because not many things, um, like, I mean, pieces uh, came to the nowadays uh, because during the wars, uh, and like Mongolia, Tatar people who came, invaded Russia, um, lots of people were lost, lots of things were lost. And there right. are not many like um, heritage which, which has been saved since that time. And uh, the official like uh, archaeological um, ethnographic period when we have lots of, when the modern uh, traditions uh, were formed uh, where we know about how people lived, how they traveled, uh, their, about their costumes and uh, like uh, customs and other things. Um, and this period started in 17th, 18th centuries in this period right. of time. Yeah, right. since, like we, since that time we have lots of uh, pieces and like since that time people still have traditions, still have, they know their uh, ancestors and other like moments mm -hmm. which we can take in, uh, into account. Okay, so um, let's do a little bit of comparative uh, reasoning to find people who are similar to the Hakassians that currently live, but historically, because uh, you've been, you said you're neighbored by um, Tuva Republic and mm -hmm. like two Russian regions. So in 
like ethnically, culturally, who are Hakassians more similar to? Are they located in Russia or are they like further away in some other place? Because while doing the research, I heard like mm -hmm. the Kyrgyz people have some things in common with the Hakas people. And the linguistically too, you guys speak a Turkic yep. language, which is common across a long, like a lot of Central Asia and Siberia. Mm -hmm. So who are you most similar to? Um, the most, the closest people, uh, which is pretty similar um, regarding culture and uh, language is Altai people. They also from Gorn Altai Republic. Uh, yeah, they uh, they are like pretty close to us, and they have mm -hmm. like pr pretty similar language, and uh, the culture is also very close to us. Um, I think Kazakh and Kyrgyz people are pretty similar. I have some friends from uh, Kazakhstan, for example, and when I um, was wearing my uh, traditional like ring, mm -hmm. they said that it's pretty similar with their um, mm. jewelry, traditional jewelry, and also they speak Turkic language. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kyrgyz people also uh, have some similarities. Yeah, because it, it was because uh, Hakas people were nomads and like people, like a people in that time were nomads and they traveled around. So they switched the language. They like took over some traditions and some right. maybe other things. So yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And uh, even nowadays there are many theories who started the <laughs> history? Who started if the history? We speak about, yeah, who started the history of the people? Like, who was the first? Mm. And uh, oh, right, since right. until today, it's a um, it's a thing for uh, some discussion because yeah, there, are, uh... there is no exact answer. Uh, yeah, especially it's funny uh, to listen to. Um, Kazakh and Kyrgyz people, uh, they cannot decide who started first. <laughs> and like, <laughs> but uh, the most of the archaeological um, facts say that it started somewhere in Siberia, but not in Kazakhstan. And Kyrgyzstan. The, the Turkish, the Turkic languages, you mean, started somewhere in Siberia? Yeah, I mean people. I mean people who has the same, uh, like, many similarities. Uh, like uh, Hakas people, um, Altai people. Right. So probably the uh, branch of this um, anthropological type started in Siberia and moved uh, forward. This right. is the most uh, common theory that everything started in Siberia and then people spread it out. Uh, but there are other theories like uh, people migrated from Central Asia to Siberia, but uh, it's there, it has way less proofs because archaeologically, archaeologists say something different and it's right. very hard to bet with archaeologists. <laughs> True, and there's lots of like socio-political context tied to this and it just makes that discussion even more heated, I think. Well, can I give you a perspective from uh, India? Okay. When I look at Central Asia, it's so fascinating. Central Asia and Russia, 
Because in India, the way, um, let's call it a people, we don't identify as ethnic people, but more on a linguistic lines. So for example, I am from a state called Kerala, and we speak a language called Malayalam. So that makes me a Malayali, that is a person from Kerala. So the thing is, it is really defined where mm -hmm. Malayalam speaking people are, and it is isolated to that region. Next region, they speak a language called Tamil, and that mm -hmm. is located in a state called Tamil Nadu. And each part of India, we have been divided based on those linguistic characteristics, and it's very stable. So if I were to move from my state to the next state, you, my language, you won't hear it again if you keep going mm -hmm. all the way to India. Central Asia and Russia, it's really fascinating in that, like you told, these nomadic movements have made the exchange of languages, culture and traditions so fluid. I'll give you an example. Let's take Buddhism. And Russia has a few Buddhist republics yep. where there is a significant Buddhist population. One Buddhist republic called Kalmykia is located all the way in the Caucasus. And the other Buddhist Republic, Buryatia, is located all the way near to Lake Baikal. It's like thousands of kilometers apart. And these people mm -hmm. are like at least religiously similar. I don't know about the linguistics part of it, which is quite interesting and quite strange from an Indian perspective, because it's like there's so much diffusion, there's so much exchange of ideas. And it, it, it it's quite, while I was doing my hitchhiking, I found it really, really um really really fascinating to see that and when when i try to learn more about these russian minority groups the minority groups who speak like a figo ugric language in the volga belt might be similar to somebody in bulgaria which is like again thousands of kilometers apart similar in the sense linguistically so that makes these russian minority groups or central asian minority groups really really interesting to study because you see that interaction between people and the exchange of ideas which happened a lot of years back having formed these distinct cultures who are so different who are in different countries but who have so much similarities which for a person who's interested in it, it's quite interesting so i think hakasi is also kind of an example of that um, it's very, yeah, it's a very interesting fact. I have lots of friends from uh, India and really like if you are not from the same territory, you probably will speak different language and like yeah. the number of language, I, I don't remember the number, the exact number, but it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, we have 22 I, uh -huh. official languages that the government recognizes That's and we I have like, we have like 200 like I think we have more than 100 languages, which more than 1 million people mm -hmm. speak. So that's a lot of languages. <laughs> and uh, I think it's because the um, climate situation is more stable in India and people don't really migrate from uh, one territory to another. That's why they form their own uh, like language tradition. That's my, uh, that, that's what I think. That's why like uh, you have so many differences uh, according to culture and language. And in uh, uh, Russia, the climate is not that nice. So that's why people need to switch the places to spend like summer and winter. Or if you stay uh, in Siberia, for example, if you stay one summer uh, in one territory, uh, like your 
uh, sheep, like your mm-hmm. um, animals eat a lot and you also like use the nature and uh, this territory after you has to like to recover and you switch the place and stay uh, in other place. So right. for a while, and that's how they migrate and switch the territory and uh, spread the culture. That's quite an interesting point. I never thought of it as like the climatic stability of India being like a reason for our distinct languages developing. I always thought it was like geographical barriers between states, but Mm -hmm. that is not always true in some cases when you think about it. I think I should learn, think more in that lines. Hmm, That's quite an interesting one. And uh, going back to Hakasia, what like um it's located in a part of the world which for me is interesting from the perspective of the mongols because hakasi is mm-hmm. not very far from mongolia so the mongols are also um an example of how this interaction between migrating groups can lead to exchange of a lot of things mm-hmm. and has that had an effect on Hakasia? Because I, 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 I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but I kind of assumed this was at one point part of the whole Mongol Empire, the whole uh, the southern Russia region. If I'm mistaken, please correct me. Um, and has that have had any effect on Hakasian culture? Thank you for asking. And yeah, that period of time really affected um, Hakasia uh, because uh, Mongolo Tatar people um, came to Hakasia and they uh, brought people, Hakas people from our territory to Mongolia, probably like strong men uh, to fight. Uh, I'm not sure now. Um, I will not like say it as a fact because I can be mistaken, but uh, the fact is that they brought people from Hakasia. And uh, when, um, when uh, and, and during that time, Hakas people weren't united. Uh, they had several like um, groups, several groups which couldn't um, fight against Haka, uh, against Mongolia Tatar. Like right. they uh, they were broken uh, during that period of time, and uh, as a result, uh, Hakas people um, like asked Russia, Russian Empire. Mm-hmm. to be joined, to, to become a part of Russian Empire, to get the mm. protection from Mongolia Tatar. That was the fact that uh, Hakasia joined Russia, not because they invaded us, but because uh, Hakasia needed it <laughs> right. to get help. And it's, um, it, it, it's yeah. quite interesting because Buryatia, when I asked a Buryat, he also told the same thing. Like they kind of joined the Russian Empire to become more safe or more stable from other invaders. I think that's quite yeah. quite a recurring theme in like these form the current republics of Siberia, is it? Um, I think, yeah, mo- most of the republics did it because they, did, they didn't have any other choice, like as a fact. And, um, rega- and regarding our um, appearance, like there is a theory that Hakas people had completely different appearance. And there are some people which still are, have ginger hair and blue eyes. And yeah, there is a theory I, I just need to clarify. Hakas people looked... I, I just need to clarify. How does a Hakas person look? 
because I won't be able to, you know, give an accurate description of that. So how would, okay. are you a typical Hakas, Hakasian woman? For, for now, yeah. Um, <laughs> for typical now. Hakas people today looks like, probably like me, uh, okay. like uh, Asian appearance, uh, dark hair and dark eyes. And like, right. Yeah. But um, there is a fact uh, which is, um, which is even like, in a book or in like letter piece, I forgot. I forgot. Uh, like, ma manuscript. Manuscript. Yeah, manuscript. There are that people that Hakas people used to look different. Um, oh. Like they were, they had ginger hair and blue eyes, and there is the theory uh -huh. that um, Mongol people, when they invaded uh, the ter territories, also influenced the population and that's why our today's appearance looks differently wow that's um, interesting i cannot say that it's a complete fact but there is a theory which some of the scientists even um uh, believe and uh, uh there are still some hakas people with ginger hair and blue eyes really so <laughs> yeah so that's not so many but there are well, is, is that how like a Hakassian supermodel would look like? Like the exclusive <laughs> ginger haired, uh, blue eyed girl? Or would it be more like the uniform, let's call it, Hakassian appearance? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I'm, I have no idea, but we have, we have what we have today. <laughs> yeah. We have Asian people with dark hair and it looks beautiful too. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Dude, like Siberian girls are quite beautiful because they are like this bridge between East Asia and like um, Europe. I know it's from my like uniquely South Indian mm -hmm. perspective where I don't get to interact with a lot of people that look like that. But remember this band that was playing while we were in uh, Salahar? It's called Otuken. Oh, yeah, I remember them. They are yeah, from Yakutia, as far as I remember. Yeah, and their music is fire. I, I definitely recommend whoever is listening to this to check out Otukin. I'll leave a link. And those girls are beautiful. They're like these, I don't know, it's, it's not Asian, but it's not Russian. It's like Siberian and it's quite unique and it's quite beautiful to those women. And interesting fact, like I, I just got to know yesterday that Otukin, the name of their band, is actually a Turkic word meaning sacred place or homeland something like that it's like something which is in the sky as well it's like ah. upper world yeah upper um, world. and by the way uh coming back to the previous your uh, to your previous question mm -hmm. um yakutian people also have similarities with hakas people uh we have oh. the same group of languages and we can actually understand each other yeah that's really it's cool isn't it that's really cool <laughs> yeah. like when people who are like so far apart can just understand some things from your language it's it, it's quite cool mm. so you talk about the mongols now let's talk a little bit about the russian empire so you told hakasin republic was voluntarily decided to become a part of the russian empire to get more stability from mm -hmm. these invading bands especially the mongols uh how has that you know influenced 
the way mm-hmm. Hakasia developed. So this was around the 17th century because a lot of, okay, I, I'm going to let you answer this question mm-hmm. and then I'll, I'll add upon that. So how has that influenced the way Hakasia has developed after that? Mm, I'm, I'm not sure about uh, like the global changes, but uh, there are some facts which completely changed. People started uh, switching from the nomad way of life to mm. um, the usual one when they stay at homes. Even, um, even uh, the uh, materials for building the yurt the dwelling of Hakas people, traditional dwelling, What's it uh, called? has been changed. Yurt. Yurt. Like yurta in Russian, the yurt ah. in English. It's a traditional dwelling of Hakas people. It has oh. lots of um, corners, like at least uh-huh. six and more. <laughs> if you wow. uh, like more, more corners, richer <laughs> hosts. Wow. <from> this house. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's an interesting way to show your rich. So if you have like, it's like <laughs> mathematics, where if you have like a square, you're not very rich. But if you have like a quadrilateral, no, what comes after quadrilateral pentagon? Yeah, if you have a pentagon, you're more rich. If you have a sexagon, you're even more rich. So the more corners it has, the more richer you are. That's a really yeah, interesting way to show six. your wealth. Like, it starts uh, with six. A traditional yurt starts with six. Yep. Okay. Uh, the, the poorest people live in, <laughs> in the yurt with six corners. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Uh, then yeah, I'm very and, poor because I live in a yurt with four corners. So I'm very, very poor. <laughs> actually, I'm not very rich too. <laughs> According to the place where I live now. Yeah, yeah four and, corners. Um, they switched the materials. Uh, they used to be more... Um, more uh, mobile like um from the made for made of the bull or right. uh like mm, the birch thing um mm-hmm. kara, i forgot like the the birch like the white uh, thing of the birch uh, the stem i probably yeah the stem okay. the birch tree you know what i mean yeah i knew the birch and they yes. took this yeah, and, and the, they took this white part of the tree and right. used it uh, to build the yurt too. They were very beautiful, white, and it was very easy to see them from the far uh, mm-hmm. distance. And uh, uh, when people started to switch their way of life, they started using wood as a material to build the yurt. Previously, mm. it's been a different material because it was easier to build it. And now it's a yurt, which is also like pretty easy to construct it and to um, uh, to switch from one place to another. But uh, they stayed for a longer time. That's why the material was different, mm. uh, heavier, um, which had more details to build it. Like it's not now. It's a it's a process. It's like a Lego, Lego oh. to. <laughs> build the yurt wow that's interesting and this came this came because of the russian influence right mm, mostly yeah because uh, uh russian people built um isba like their houses made of wood and uh right. hakas people took it over because the material is way better if you stay for a longer time. It's uh, it keeps energy like warmth for a longer time, um, and many many other uh, 
positive facts which led people to do, take over the material. Another mm. thing which is uh, very uh, important is switching the religion. Hakas people were uh, in were paganists, like uh, mm -hmm. they had shamanism. Tengrianism, if I'm correct with the English word of describing this. And when uh, uh, they became a part of Russia, uh, the Christianization of Kiwurd. And uh, oh. now people are Christian. But Hakas people are very like tolerant people. And if you come to the traditional yurt, now people don't really live in yurts. But if you come, if you came to the ethnographic yurt of Hakas people, there is a like red corner, which is traditionally uh, uh, is in uh, uh, Russian houses too. Uh, that's a place where uh, the icon uh, is mm. kept. Okay. And in Hakassian yurts, we have many uh, corners, as you know now. Yeah. There is also a red corner where where uh, icon and some like shamanism, shamanists hmm. or paganists um, attribute is located too. They like they became Christians, but uh, they still um, had some uh, own uh, old uh, paganist traditions. And right. until today, people like follow them. Right. That, that's quite interesting because in when we were in uh, Yamal and Yamal, the, mm -hmm. we were taken to these uh, dwellings of natives called Chum. Mm -hmm. And I noticed the same thing. They also had a place for the icons, which is like uh, uh, Russian Orthodox icons of Russian saints. Mm -hmm. But there were all those, also these shamanic ribbons and small uh, jewelry. I don't know how to describe it quite well. And I was quite, I asked the question like, you guys are Christians, but your form of Christianity is quite different from what I see in other like Russian households or in Russia in general. So she explained to me like it's quite it's like a hybrid of their traditional practices of shamanism and Christianity. And that makes it this really unique. It, it, it's, 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 I don't think it's quite well documented the way Christianity has kind of co-evolved in these Siberian mm -hmm. or these minority Russian Republic. Maybe I think that should be a really interesting topic for somebody to actually do research on because it's quite interesting how the different native people embrace Christianity while also preserving their certain forms of life. In contrast mm -hmm. to India, where we also have Christianity, which we embraced from Syrians and Europeans, mm -hmm. and we also kind of put some part of our old hinduistic traditions into it but i'm not saying it is but it's still christianity but mm -hmm. not not hinduism but there's slight elements of it so it's quite interesting the way that these uh republics have embraced russian christianity and also maintain not maintain kind of co-evolved their mm -hmm. traditional religions too i think it's because uh, also because um shamanism or paganism were the uh, religions which helped people to survive um they for example fed the fire uh to and they understood that fire is a very important thing uh to stay like warm to stay healthy um they uh like any like paganism culture is very close and has a strong connection with nature. Uh, 
they respected the spirits of water, the spirit of air and uh, the earth. Uh, that's why uh, they were pretty natural, like advices to stay safe. For right. example, to get better, uh, to get more milk or more um, sheep, <laughs> like more animals, uh, they asked earth, like ground, to give it to them. Right. When they wanted like to have better hunting, they also asked for it. That's why, like, uh, I think paganism and shamanism were not even about the, um, were not just a religion. It was a natural rules of how to survive and how to uh, live on the planet. It In was harmony about with life, nature. About, yeah, it's a very wise, uh, it, it, like, I think, I, I'm pretty sure that paganism, shamanism are religi religions which are very wise. Because it's not just about praying for something, it's about like uh, life rules, <laughs> which right. help people to survive. Uh, that's quite interesting when you put it like that. You know what I like the most about shamanism? The throat singing. I uh, love yeah. <laughs> listening to Siberian throat singing and Otakin is a good example, but there are other bands too. I was like, it's, it, 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 it sounds so intimidating and it sounds so, how do you say, it sounds like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's like death metal music, but a <laughs> form of shamanism. <laughs> and it, I, I, I kind of felt kind of, it's really good to listen to, but it kind of feels like demons coming up to you, but it's, it was, it's, it's a specialty of uh, Siberia. I think Siberian throat singing, and Tibet also has this tradition of throat singing. Like, and I don't want to imitate it. I might break my throat. <laughs> yeah. Throat singing is amazing. And uh, not only shaman, uh, shamans, but also in Hakka's culture, a person called Haiji could do this. Mm. Haiji is a, a person who is a spokesperson. Um, it uh, he or she mostly has been a man. Uh, in oh, the wait, past. wait, wait, wait! Can can women also throat sing? Because I haven't heard yeah. they can today. Yeah, but uh, in the past they can do this, ah. but traditionally it was not really allowed. I have no idea why. Oh, like okay. I'm as a modern woman, I'm not sure <laughs> why it was protected. But uh, there are some like like there were some rules where men could do this but women not but women also can um, they they are able to do this and today there are some women who use throat singing uh pretty uh, successfully wow send me, send me a link i will I'll send you a link that's quite interesting and I also i will send you a link uh you should listen to a beautiful band which is very famous and i know these people um uh, the group uh, the band called yatha it's from tuba mm -hmm. they are very famous uh more famous abroad than in russia even mm, but they were they are awesome and their vocal person is amazing you you should listen to this and uh, i will send you a link if i'm if i forget just tell me uh, and yeah. then uh share your experience your experience of listening definitely definitely i'll definitely do that <laughs> dude <laughs> that's what i love about siberia siberia is for, from an international perspective siberia is this it, like you told it's like mars 
but cold. It's so cold that people can't live there, and people live in tents, and it's 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 not given the diversity of culture and the richness that it actually has. I think even in Russia too, because I before this podcast I asked a lot of people, "What do you know about Hakasia Russians?" And they're like, "Good nature." A lot of lakes, open fields. That's basically what people, Russians, that I talk to, know about this place, Hakasia. And I think that is not doing enough justice to the cultural and uh, cultural diversity of the Siberian republics. Which once I went to uh, the ice forum in Salahar, I got to know like it's really interesting, really interesting, and it's not given enough uh, screen time. Let's call it Spe- abroad, definitely not. In Russia too, I think the closest he got was like you know this documentary called Happy People, Shastlivi Ludi. Mm, I'm not sure. Yeah, you it, should it, send it, me a link. I'll, I'll send you a link. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a really cool documentary. It's not about like it's about not about minority people in Russia, but Russians who live in the taiga. It's like called Bakhta, which is uh, I think a few uh, in. Krasnoyarsky cry, and it shows how Russian Russians live in harmony with nature. They are trappers. I don't trappers. Do you do you understand what that meant? Mm, yeah, they I collect think, yeah. furs. Mm-hmm. They collect furs. I, I don't know the Russian yep. word for it. So it's their lifestyle, and it's called. Chasliviludi because these people don't worry about all the bullshit that we have to deal with and they live this very simple but very hard and harsh life and they're quite happy with it and I think we should get to know more about the way people in Siberia live so that's why we're doing that's this that's amazing <laughs> that's amazing and you know I know one um, I know an artist she's a photographer and uh, uh, her name is Olga Michi, and she's amazing because she has she had some she traveled around the world, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, last year she presented her um, uh, her exhibition of like the collection of portraits uh, from Russia and from Africa. She mm. took photographs of uh, people who has. Who leads a traditional way of life uh, in uh, uh, in Africa? These were some tribes. I'm not. I don't remember their name, but these were people who like pretty has uh, like the traditional um, way of life, living in uh, like small um, dwellings and having like lots of uh, traditional stuff. And in the Russian part, it's Chukcha or Chukotka, somewhere there. It's somewhere um, Where is that far. Place? Where... Ch- Ch- Chukotka. Uh, Chukotka is also like, it's in the north. Uh, these are people pretty similar uh, from the point of uh, having a way of life, like Yamal people. Oh, okay. It's also like in somewhere, I, I think it's far east even. Like it's like Siberia, but a little bit in the like east. Kamchatka near to Kamchatka not really not really um I'm I sometimes I'm sometimes lost in geography but it's somewhere uh, on the in the north so mm-hmm, that's what mm-hmm. uh, and probably easter than oh, uh, right. for example even Hakasia located so right. um, yeah and these 
pictures are amazing. And when I asked her, uh, don't you want to um, took photographs of other Russian peoples because it's very interesting, like people in, in wearing traditional clothes or something, like because it looks really like that when I saw the pictures at first. And she told me very valuable things. I don't wanna. Um, I don't wanna take photographs of uh, like people just wearing costumes. She wanted to take photographs of people naturally living there. Mm -hmm. That's why, for example, I'm very sad about like Hakasia because most of the people now don't live, don't have that traditional way of life. They are integrated in uh, the modern life and it's good, but at the same time, uh, they don't really wear, for example, traditional costumes or right. like doing some other traditional stuff. And it's sometimes, it, it's pretty sad that it's natural. Yeah, we know that globalization and um, like technologies come to everybody's life. Uh, and it, on the one hand, it's good because it's easier to live. But on the right. other hand, we lose some traditions and it's the process which we cannot influence <laughs> just to get it back, <laughs> unfortunately. True. So let's take, stay on that idea. So mm -hmm. there's this, um, I think there's this, I, like people from, Let's call it the civilized world. I don't like to use mm -hmm. that word, but let's call it that for the mm -hmm. time being. Let's people from the big cities. We kind of feel when people who live in like remote places who follow traditional mm -hmm. tribal lifestyle, when they get civilized, which means get access mm -hmm. to electricity, get access to education, get access to all the amenities that we take for granted, that they lose some part of their culture, that they lose something in that process. Is that a little bit of um, patronizing from our parts to other people? Because these mm -hmm. people, due to a lot of reasons, maybe geographic or cultural, have not had access to a lot of things which made our lives easier, which made mm -hmm. the duration of our lives better, modern medicine, electricity, plumbing, which like for uh, which changed the way we live like contraception and processed mm -hmm. food and all these things so we are kind of romanticizing their life in a way like they don't have the problems that we have because they don't have the the amenities that we have and when they mm -hmm. do get those will they also get the problems that we are dealing with what do you think on that lines are we little bit are, are we being are we patronizing the people or the tribes in all these places? Uh, people who live in the remote uh, places and I think and have the different way of life, they have different problems. <laughs> yeah. So uh, they just don't think of, oh my God, my uh, like laptop is working slowly. <laughs> they just think have a more serious thing to deal with. But uh, I think and uh, um, I think if you take the person, just take a person who uh, spent the whole life living in that area and he will just move to a big city, he's, um, it will be very hard to change this person. But uh, if it is a different generation of people, 
who like started their life in a, not in a rural area but in the city and uh, he grew up with other like urban people he will change probably um, the way of life the way he thinks but uh, if in in the family if like in the uh, in the family tradition if they still have some mm, some own uh, traditions he probably and uh, view of life probably like I'm not sure it's very hard question to speak because I didn't experience it myself and I speak from my point of view probably mm -hmm. like uh, the 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 family traditions mean a lot and if you grew up saving some um, uh, family rules some traditional rules you will probably keep it through your life even if you switch the place but of course if you live in moscow for example uh you will not uh, be a relaxed person <laughs> because it's impossible. i know <laughs> i used to be a relaxed person you, but now i'm not <laughs> if you, yeah if you have a usual job if you like uh, have to use um, subway every day, for sure you like your focus will like change a bit. Uh, but it's very hard to say. But I think if you uh, if the the family keeps their traditions inside uh, their community, uh, they will be able to bring them through the generations. Mm -hmm. even language for example uh, i know many people like even in my family i speak hakas language not like very bad like it's very hard for me because i didn't use it since my childhood a lot uh my parents didn't teach me hakas like language a lot so we uh, spoke mostly russian okay can i clarify when you said they didn't teach you do you mean t teach to speak or to write and read no, they even like we spoke Russian in our like inside oh, okay. our family, and I um, understand Hakas language because I learned it by myself. Like mm -hmm. I started learning Hakas language when I grew up because I'm interested in it. Right. <laughs> but it, my family didn't really speak it, and uh, we and I'm very sad because we lost this tradition. And I'm not a like I don't speak Hakas language good and well enough to speak with my future kids Hakas right. language. Right. And that's why strong family tradition means a lot to preserve and to actualize your culture, your uh, tradition. Interesting. Uh, can I give you like another parallel story from India? Yep. So um in my personal case I, I i like it all i'm a malayali and my parents only speak malayalam so i we didn't we didn't have like another language to speak with so i grew up speaking malayalam but in mm -hmm. school for some reason my parents put me to learn a different language so in school i never studied malayalam and i was more interested in english than malayalam and what happened was that as i grew older the consumption of everything like literature movies music went all the way towards english and so less towards malayalam that it started kind of affecting 
like my language skills in Malayalam at one point. My question is, this scenario that you just explained, it's so common in Russia where Russian ethnic minorities don't speak, especially ethnic minorities of our age, don't speak their language or speak it really poorly. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even talking about reading and writing because that's like next level, but just mm -hmm. speaking is very becoming very more and more uncommon for people of our generation. The exception being the Caucasus, the Caucasian republics, they do speak their languages quite well. And I think uh, even people of our age do speak their languages. Mm -hmm. What do you attribute this to? Why are the Caucasus more protective of the languages? And why has other minority ethnic groups in Russia kind of not given priority to the language or not been able to uh -huh. pass it on? That's a good question. And I have the answer for it. Yeah. Um, if we speak about uh, Caucasus and some like or Tuva, for example, uh, we see that these territories are more isolated and less Russian population is located there. Uh, that's why they keep their tradition to speak the native language. For example, Tuva became a part of Russia just last, um, the previous century, in 20th century. <laughs> and they have okay. lots of native population. If we speak about um, Kazan or Tatarstan, we see that uh, the, a lot of population in Tatarstan uh, are Tatar people. The same is with Yakutia or Buryatia. If we speak about Hakassia, there is just 13% of traditional population. It's not, uh, it's not just a, li a little, not a small number. It's about 60,000 people in a, like in general, but yeah. um, <laughs> way more people speak Russian in our Republic and uh, the need to use Hakas language is being lost and it started in uh, way earlier in the Soviet Union when people when urbanization uh, appeared <laughs> occurred uh, because when we uh, come to for example Askis Askis or in Hakas Askis is a um, region is a like uh, district as uh, Askis uh, district in Hakasia it's a territory where mostly Hakas people live. Mm -hmm. It's a part of Hakasia with the mostly Hakasian population. And there, most of the people speak Hakas and even mm. sometimes even better than Russian. But if we speak about different parts of Hakasia where uh, this, the strong Russian influence occurs, takes place, we see that people mostly use Russian. That's what happened, for example, in my mom's family. Um, they lived mostly in uh, um, areas where the population was mostly Russian. Right. Uh, my mom's uh, dad was uh, a school director and he was sent to different schools. And uh, uh, as they lived with Russian people and my dad worked with Russian people, Russian speaking people, sorry, uh, they also had to use it inside the family because uh, they should speak Russian well, 
not being criticized because of the language and some other facts. That's why uh, my mom, for example, understands Hakas, but she doesn't really speak it now. Right. And uh, the most, uh, so summarizing uh, everything mentioned above, um, I would say that if the number of people is low and if you don't really need to use the language, you will <laughs> forget yeah. it. You're, and it's not a quick process, but less and less people will use it. Uh, for, and there is a one interesting, by the way, um, example from Kyrgyzstan. I have a very good friend uh, she tries, like she uses uh, Kyrgyz language pretty often because she works on the television uh, and uh, she grew up in a family where they used it. And her son, he also speaks that uh, Kyrgyz language, but uh, he mo now as Russification takes place there, mm, mm -hmm. he mostly speaks Russian. Sometimes even she uh, asks something him and he answers, he responds to her using Russian language. Interesting. It's because uh, if you have more reasons to speak Russian, for example, why will you speak Kyrgyz? That's uh, what, um, for example, uh, like Central Asian regions try to switch. They still have their own, they, the television in Kyrgyz or Kazakh right. language. They also have Russian speaking to, like programs, but they, tr they speak preserve and they keep um, their uh, native language publications and other right. um, tools to uh, leave it actual, actualized. Right. So from what I understood from what you said, especially from the example of your mom's families that the way Russian society is organized, the economic stimulus is to use Russian more than your native language because in all spheres Russian is used as such and if you want to like for in your case like he wanted to go to different places and mm -hmm. he wanted to work with different people so Russian becomes the lingua franca the default language that people use and it's in comparison in India it's happening the same phenomenon is happening there knowing English is absolutely essential if you want to have any chance at social mobility and want mm -hmm. to get a proper job and your native language is not very useful in that sense so we are mm -hmm. being less incentivized to learn our native language and we are more being anglicization let's call it anglified mm -hmm. and one other interesting thing is the Indian family Indian family structures are usually homogenous. It is only in like the last 20 years that intermarriage between people of different uh, languages has become popular because before that Indians usually mm -hmm. like you told you didn't migrate that much. It's like I grew up in my city. I get a job in my city. I marry a girl in my city and I die in my city. That's how most people used to live in India. But now there's a phenomenon where people from different languages are getting married. And when these two people from different languages, we communicate only through English and our kids will grow up listening to just English and they'll be in like this um, middle of the ocean situation where 
they just know English and they don't know my language properly or the language of the mothers properly. Has how do Russians or Russian minorities deal with that situation where when you're trying to raise kids and you are married or in a relationship with someone who doesn't speak your language, how do you uh, how do you even do you even try to make the kid learn your own language just as a way of preserving your culture? Is there a tradition of that in Russia? Because from what I noticed, it's not, it's very mm-hmm. rare or it's almost not a priority. Uh- it's very individual. It's up to the family. Um, I know some families where they teach for uh, a kid to speak, for example, Hakas language or like Tatar language. And I know families which uh, don't really use Russia, like um, their traditional language, for example. Like uh, when we speak uh, about peoples inside Russia, so they both speak Russian, for example, but she's from Hakasia, but he's from Buryatia, for example. Uh, like, it's up to the family. They mostly probably, probably they mostly will speak Russian, but if they want, they will teach the kid to speak uh, the native language of one of the partners. Right. Uh, I have some examples with uh, uh, international families where she's from Russia, for example, and he's from the United States or uh, any other country. Uh, and mostly Russian women try to speak their kids to speak Russian. Oh. <laughs> Are they successful? <laughs> no. Are they successful? Really successful. Yeah. Wow. And even, That's good. I, I have a very interesting story when um, I met a guy at the airport uh, in France and we traveled to Moscow together uh, and we spoke for, uh, we have been speaking for two hours at the, uh, at the airplane and uh, he uh, and his mom, uh, like he, he was very small when his family traveled from uh, Russia to the United States. Um, and as far as I understand, his father is uh, English speaking and his mom is Russian speaking person. So he speaks both. And he even migrated back to Russia after 30 years of living in the United States because uh, he just wanted to live in Russia and he is very fluent with Russian language, but he still has an accent, a very cute American accent. Is his name Konstantin? No. <laughs> oh, okay. Because I know a person exactly like that. <laughs> I, think, okay. I think there are lots of people with a similar story, actually. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So can we just go on a tangent to the United States? Because uh-huh. you have a little bit of story with the United States from my research. You did your master's in United States, right? Could you explain about that? What were you doing there? What were you studying? How was United States for a Russian girl? Um, okay, guess what I could study if I work with museums. <laughs> oh, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say archaeology or how do you say? It? I don't know what the study of museums is called. Museum creating. Museum studies. <laughs> museum studies. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm a master of arts in museum studies. That's what I studied for, for two years. Uh, this became possible thanks to Fulbright program. Oh, so you got I a Fulbright? A yeah. Wow. Yeah, and it, it's been a scholar, a scholarship. So uh, it was a nice period of my life. Wow. So I lived in Syracuse, New York, 
Uh, mm -hmm. Syracuse University is a private university. It's a very nice place to study. And uh, during that time, I like learned a lot about how museums work because they had lots of um, practices. So, and uh, it was just a very nice experience because United States and university um, environment is very rich with different people from different countries. That's why today I have friends from um, Ukraine, from United States, Belarusia, from India, China, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's the right. rich, that's the most valuable experience which I got. I got people from completely different countries and I learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you should come to Ruden. Ruden is where the magic happens. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Yeah, Rudin is also very um, rich with cultures. Yeah, yeah, it's a very nice place. And uh, how? So let's talk about your interest in museum studies. When did that happen? Like, why did you decide to get into studying museums? <laughs> it's a very interesting story. Like. Uh, because uh, I graduated with a bachelor uh, in um, German philology. German? And after that, yeah, I speak German and I uh, learned German philology. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but I decided to go for masters and uh, I didn't really want to keep going with linguistics and this stuff. And uh, I was interested in culture. So I decided to apply for history and I um, graduated after graduating with a bachelor degree. I also graduated uh, from the same university, but with a degree in history, master's degree in history, mm -hmm. uh, focusing on ethnography and uh, like Hakas region studies. Mm. Uh, while studying, um, I uh, used to work as a um and i as a tv presenter for a while and like i spoke about many many things and like i thought that museums are very interesting part and uh i ended up uh, having my internship at the museum at right. the hakas national museum and thanks to my uh job as a tv presenter they asked me to um, give a tour for the minister of Russia, of Russian, like minister of, of culture of Russian Federation in 2016. Wow. And when it was pretty successful, uh, they uh, offered me a job there. Wow. So, yeah, cool. and it was the second year of my master's and I was uh, going to graduate and I, just, I didn't get any other offer. <laughs> so I decided, <laughs> oh, it would be nice to work at the museums. I've never done it. And like, it's, it, it's going to be pretty interesting. So. I got the offer and I've been working at the museum for two years. I worked with, as a specialist in exhibitions. So I curated mm -hmm. exhibitions uh, not, uh, from the thematic and documentation point of uh, tasks. So, right. and um, that when I studied, uh, when I worked at the museum, uh, like as a person who deals with languages and international students for years while studying at the university, I knew that uh, the program, the Fulbright program 
uh, take place in some people's life. And I decided why not to apply? I want to, I want to grow up in this field. I want to become a professional in museums. And I felt the lack of knowledge. That's why I decided to apply for Fulbright and I got it. And after two years of working at the museum, I left for the United States. Wow. Dude, yep. I I'm going to try to say this as least patronizing as I can, but forgive me if it does sound patronizing, but your English is amazing. <laughs> like really really good and um i i got i got to know from the uh, the presentation that there was you know this girl's english is really good and i'm not saying really good for a russian but really good overall and um it's quite cool <laughs> that we can talk pretty normally because usually when i talk with russians uh whose english is not very good but they still can communicate i have to kind of tone down the way i speak and kind of make it water down the ideas but now i can like talk 100 normally with you and i'm so happy that i can do that because <laughs> usually my russifikasi episodes i'm like a little bit you know i st i get a russian accent at the end i'm like yes that is true the way that the <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i love how the way you speak <laughs> that's just it so i'm so happy that i can speak normally with you mm -hmm. so thank you so much for getting that fulbright scholarship so for going to united states and <laughs> <laughs> talking to me <laughs> thanks a lot and i i could say that uh your english is amazing uh and oh, uh even your russian accent when you try to pretend <laughs> like it's it's just amazing <laughs> i love it <laughs> thank you <laughs> oh my god oh my god it's you are okay. welcome you are welcome oh i feel so honored comrade <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. Let's let's not get like banned on Russian internet for making fun of Russians. Okay. <laughs> so let's get into the organization that you're working on now. Oh, do you have anything else about Hakasi? Anything interesting that an international person or a Russian should know? Do you want to add anything else? Because I want to take the discussion to your organization next. Yeah, I just want to say that if you don't, uh, you will get the full. Um, impression about what Hakasia is only when you come there and Hakasia is very beautiful and welcoming republic we have interesting food I don't, uh, delicious and sometimes interesting I say this because not really people enjoy some um, dishes but they are still wonderful experience uh, we what, what's the craziest Hakasia. what's the craziest dish the craziest um, there is a soup uh, with guts with what? Guts. Um, ah, the the intestines of the yep. intestines, yeah. Yep. And mm. I don't, I I don't like it. I mean, I even never tried it because I smelled it. <laughs> 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 but uh, but people say that it's beautiful, and I know uh, a couple of American guys who love this dish. Uh, mm. Yeah, I I have a friend. Uh, He's a he's American and he deals with Hakas instruments and like national instruments. So wow. and he, he's been living in Hakasia for several years, exploring it, and uh, he uh, loved this soup. And uh, Haka, uh, Hakas people have also a very beautiful dish. It's delicious. It's made. It's called. Um, oh my God! I. I speak, I'm speaking, I've been speaking English for an uh, hour and a half and <laughs> I forgot. 
Talhan, Talhan. Uh, it's like Kazakh Talhan. 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 Uh, it's made of. Uh, it's made of. It's like a um, flower, but mm-hmm. very um, hard. Uh, hard mixed flower. Like it. Ha- it's not like a white flower. It's mm-hmm, way more. Mm-hmm. I forgot this word. Yeah. Uh, more coarse. More thick. Yep. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's uh, what I wanted to say. And uh, uh, Hakas people make like um, small, tiny confetti, um, like uh, candy. Candies, uh, yeah, candies. Uh-huh. Uh, they use uh, talhan, uh, honey, and uh, some like berries or um, berries or nuts for it. So they have a round form and you can just eat it. It's beautiful. It's very um, rich uh, regarding nutrition. Like Hakas people were nomads and they traveled a lot and like, yeah. spent a lot of time in the nature. So and they could eat it and uh, it was good enough for several hours. Wow. That's pretty yeah, cool. And beautiful nature, beautiful people, uh, friendly people, like just come to Russia, Ru- uh, come to Russia, come to Hakassia, and uh, I will help. I can, I can personally help with some good guides oh. and like advises where to go first. <laughs> oh, th- th- thank you so much. I, I'll, I'll definitely make sure the next time I'm hitchhiking through Russia, I'll come through Hakassia <laughs> and I'll ask, Yo, I know Olga Chistinovna, just take me to that place. And people are going to be like, yeah, she's the number one museum curator in Hakassia <laughs> <laughs> or maybe Russia. Well, um, I, I was actually, I was actually near Hakassia because when I was hitchhiking, I went through Kamariev. Kamariva, Krasnoyarsk. So it's like if I go down from Krasnoyarsk, oh, yeah. it's Hakas. It's yeah. like you just made a route, like uh, you almost crossed it. You were in Kamarava. Like mm-hmm. what, this is Hakasia. This mm-hmm. is Kamarava. Mm-hmm. And you did this Kamarava, Krasnoyarsk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but next time I'll come, definitely. <laughs> well, I think. I remember. Yeah, you, <laughs> Definitely, I will remember. I'll I'll come and ask for the intestine soup. <laughs> good. <laughs> That's good. what I'm gonna do. <laughs> so let's move on to the organization that you work with. What exactly? So you kind of gave an introduction to the organization. So what what are the projects that you guys are working on that would be interesting that you would think? Um. Um. Yeah, Icon Russia works a lot on the project for um, Russian museum professionals. One of the most successful and most um, long existing is uh, Inclusive Museum. Uh, this project is, um, the project's goal is to, um, to teach people how to work with visitors with special needs uh, because um, the museums should be able like any cultural and any other like place should be available for any group of population and uh, in our pro like for our project it is important to make museums more available for people with special needs we worked with uh, deaf people with people um, like blind people, uh, with 
people with uh, mental uh, mental specialties, like uh, uh -huh. mental, yeah. And uh, uh, and uh, it is pretty successful. We um, also have a um, special day, a uh, special period of time, uh, which is called uh, Museum for Everyone. Uh, it's a mm, like new museum tradition where uh, the museums from different uh, regions organize uh, the events for people with special needs. Mm -hmm. So uh, we try to make uh, museums available for every people, every person, twenty four hours <laughs> a day. Twenty four hours. Uh, yeah, like twenty four hours, seven days a week. Like, like to make to make museums uh, accessible for people any day. But uh, in regions where, for example, uh, there are not so many budget, there is not so many budgeting, for example, or they have um, a low amount of employees, it's very hard to, uh, to organize uh, the environment of the museum accessible 24 hours a day, like not, uh, yeah. And they organize special I, events. I, I'm sorry, they... but I didn't quite understand what you mean by 24 hours. Do you mean the museum is open 24, 24 hours? No, or... no, 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 no. I don't mean this. I mean, uh, not to uh, when the museum is accessible, not only for special events for people ah. with special needs, but right. whenever they want to come. All the time. All the time. Okay, understood, yeah. understood. In Russian, it's uh, correctly. It's like just good. Like it's uh, okay to say in Russian, but maybe in English it sounds a little bit weird. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry for it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and that's our mission uh, to finally make museums accessible everywhere in any region in Russia accessible for people with special needs. Uh, we also had a project uh, the the organizer, the uh, creator of these two projects, which I'm speaking about, uh, is Dinara Khalikova. She used to be a project director at ICOM Russia, and now she works with um, uh, as a board member of ICOM Russia. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, the second. Uh, project which we did was migration the uh, revealing the personal where we worked with people with more like with uh, travel experience uh, like migrants migrants like people who moved uh from other country to russia um uh... yeah and we uh tried to identify how museums can help people with this experience to integrate in um, uh, the usual life. So, uh, okay, th that's an interesting project. So, uh, tell me if I understood correctly. You are seeing how migrants who come to Russia can be integrated to Russian society through museums. That's the aim of this project. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and so we organize. We also had a film, uh, a movie. Uh, like this project was supported by the presidential uh, grants, mm -hmm. the presidential grant, and uh, uh, thanks to this project, we uh, had some um, a seminar, a seminar for museum professionals, but also the very important uh, product which was created um, while uh, or while working on this project was creating a movie 
where we uh, uh, told several stories about people from different countries who came to Russia. Some of them are students. Some of them uh, moved uh, because of work. Uh, some of them had to leave their country due to some like uh, negative political like uh, mm -hmm. environment. So uh, it's on YouTube. You can watch send me it. a link. That that sounds really interesting. This I will movie. send you a link. Hmm. Yeah, and it's very interesting because uh, Russia is a multicultural country, and there are lots of people from different countries. Not only like uh, native peoples who are spread around the country, but uh, people who like moved here. And it's interesting to listen to every story because even I'm from Hakasia, but I um, like from Russia. I had some similar things to take over uh, while watching this movie. It's amazing. Mm. And museums can really help sometimes. If we speak about Garage, for example, they also organize, um, for example, guided tours for uh, in uh, Kyrgyz, uh, in Tajik, like uh, other languages, which not, not only English, for example. Right. Yeah. And uh, just, uh, just uh, find time and watch it. It's very interesting. I will, I will. That, that's quite an interesting thing that I'm trying to understand because the, the situation of migrants to Russia is not the picture that it's not like a post-colonial migrant situation of, mm -hmm. let's say, United Kingdom or United States or Canada. The Russian migration, the situation is quite different. Mm -hmm. And um, there's, I know very little about it. I'm a migrant myself here at this moment of time. And the... Mm -hmm the process that I have to go to will be very different from what is in the United States. So I think it would be quite interesting to listen to that. Hmm, interesting. You have a lot of interesting projects, Ola, Oli, yeah. Olga. Follow Icom Russia. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, definitely, definitely send me a link and let me know if you guys have any projects happening in Moscow or any of these places. I'll try to join and try to attend because okay. it's quite interesting. The, the things you guys are doing and I hope you guys continue on doing such interesting things. Yeah, uh, thank you. I, I also hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's pretty much all I have to ask. Do you have anything else to add which you think might be interesting or which is relevant for the conversation? Mm, I, at first, I would, love, I, I would love to thank you for inviting me uh, for this podcast. It was a pretty interesting experience to discuss uh, many, many things, starting with organization where I work, uh, finishing with uh, some cultural similarities and differences uh, all around the world, not only Hakasia, but Russia, India, and some other right. countries. And it, it's been a pretty interesting uh, discussion. I hope everyone enjoyed it. So uh, please, uh, if you need something to ask regarding Hakasia, ICOM, or some other questions, you can uh, ask me if you like if you share Definitely. the context, because I'm al always ready to um, to communicate on any topics. <laughs> so thanks a lot for inviting. I spent a wonderful time. It's been a pretty good morning with coffee yeah. <laughs> and nice conversation <laughs> yeah it's been a pretty good morning for me too thank you so much uh, olga I, i'm trying to say your name oli but i, I it's just ola but I, i'm like st let's stick to olga let's keep it russian <laughs> olga okay <laughs> <Olga. cute. laughs>
Okay, okay. Exactly. Uh, thank you so much. You're a wonderful conversationalist. Talking to you, listening to you is really, really interesting. And uh, I hope we get to hear more from you in the future from the projects that you're doing. And uh, I hope I can do get to visit Hakasia one day because it's really beautiful. I checked the YouTube YouTube videos. <laughs> it's quite an interesting place. And if I do visit, I'll definitely let you know. And <laughs> once again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your thoughts. Have a nice day and enjoy your coffee. Thanks a lot. Have a nice day too. <laughs> okay.